Verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have, been, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person with you... Uh, As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is God's word. You may be seated. The Lord's Supper, it can be very dizzying and both daunting to try to wrap your head and heart around it. What do I mean by that? Well, just consider some of the very different questions associated with it. First of all, what do you call it? Do you call it communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or something else? Is it a sacrament, or is it an ordinance? What's the difference between them, if there is any? How often should you partake of communion? Weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly, biannually? Should we have wine or grape juice? Bread or wafers or crackers? Do you dip the bread or do you eat and then drink? Is this the literal body and blood of Christ or is it merely a symbol? Why should we practice the Lord's Supper? Why does it have such a prominent place amongst God's people? Unless you think this is a modern problem regarding all the different perspectives and opinions people have on it, go back with me to the 1500s just for a moment. Because in the 1500s, for those of you who know church history, those of you who may not, in the 1500s is what happened is what, what's known as the Protestant Reformation. And to try to condense it and sum it up in just a, a paragraph, several people throughout Europe in the 1500s became fed up with how the Catholic Church had gone astray from the Word of God. Uh, A lot of the Reformers, uh, their efforts can be whittled down. And and what did they do? They studied God's Word anew, saw what God's Word said, and saw where the Church had gone astray. So, uh, the Reformers, they whittled down a lot of their theology, their doctrine, their findings into what's known as the five solas of the Reformation. Some of you may or may not have heard of this before. But what are the five solas? Sola means alone. So it's we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. There's a whole lot to unpack in there, but that's the condensed version of what they came up with. Now, as the Reformation progressed, several notable figures, including the all-famous Martin Luther and another perhaps less-known church historian, uh, Huldrych Zwingli is his name, they gathered together at a meeting in Marburg in 1529. Why do I bring all of this up? Because at that meeting in 1529, these different uh, guys came together to talk about 15 key doctrines of the, of Christ, the Christian faith. In other words, what are, the, what are the 15 things that we believe are so important that we cannot compromise on that you must have if you are to be a true Christian and that a faithful Christian? And of the 15 di- different doctrines, which ranged from salvation and to the Word of God and different things, they agreed on 14 of them. Can you guess which one they did not agree upon? All of these men who studied the Word very deeply, it was the issue or the topic of the Lord's Supper. So even today, though there are different denominations, different faith practices, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, and this past week as I was doing my sermon preparation, uh, to Megan's chagrin, one thing I have on my uh, Safari tab, I have maybe 30 different tabs open at the same time, different articles. Some people, that drives them nuts. You have to have one thing open at a time. But it's just 30 different articles and and sermons and resources about communion. And I was just overwhelmed, frankly. Like, where, do, where on earth can I land on this? What can I say that's biblical and true, that's not merely my opinion? And I, it was just very daunting, overwhelming. But similar if you were with us a couple weeks ago, when I, when I talked about the, the end times, you cannot have paralysis and indecision when it comes to communion. We as Christians cannot have that attitude. Either, you know, I'm just too scared, it's too big, I can't try to figure it out, or it's not even good to have indecision. Yeah, I'm just not going to try. I I can't settle anywhere. There's too much opinion. We can't have that attitude. Because God spoke his word for our good, to build us up, for for his glory. And we would do very well then to try to attempt to wrap our heads and hearts around this monumental component of the church. So what's our goal today? What's our aim? Our aim is simply this. Have a little more clarity and have a little more unity when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It's a disclaimer. I cannot, I absolutely cannot, answer every question you might have today about the Lord's Supper. I myself am still learning regarding this big component of the church. I cannot settle all the factions today through 20, 30-minute sermon, I simply desire to share with you what God's Word is clear on regarding the Lord's Supper, and then where I might stand from a biblical, baptistic perspective in areas where it's not extremely, explicitly clear. So as we look at 1 Corinthians 11, what I want to do is highlight five unquestionable truths. Don't worry, these five are shorter than the normal three. Five unquestionable truths of what the Lord's Supper is and what it's about. Number one, it's instituted by Jesus. Number two, it's for the gathered church. Number three, it's for remembrance. Number four, it's about reorientation. And then lastly, the posture of your heart matters. Firstly, it's instituted by Jesus. We get this from verses 23 to 25. 
This is Paul reciting, uh, restating what happened originally in Luke 22, which we've read over the past couple weeks. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So right there, explicitly, and also from Luke 22, verse 19, Jesus said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's an explicit command from Jesus. But you might retort back, well, Jesus spoke a lot of commands to his followers. For example, in Luke 22, verse 36, you go down a few verses from what we looked at. Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Did you know that was a command of Jesus? If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Another command, Luke 18, verse 22. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. I can guarantee you, nobody here has done that today. Just, if you you have, come and correct me. But, right, so these different commands Jesus speaks, why then does this command about the Lord's Supper and baptism have such a high place in the church? What sets them apart? What distinguishes them amongst other commands that Jesus spoke? Well, when you look back through church history, beginning in the first century, beginning in the book of Acts, it's clear that the church thought of the Lord's Supper as unique and distinct amongst all of God's commands. Because in the church today, if you've ever heard the term ordinance, or we as a Baptist, we have two ordinances, being baptism and the Lord's Supper, you know ordinance is just another word for command or instruction. So the ordinance, though, in the church, when we use that word, an ordinance refers to a Christian rite associated with tangible elements that is celebrated by the church of Jesus Christ. Or to think of it slightly differently, an ordinance is an outward and visible sign of an inward and visible grace. Okay, did you catch all of that? An ordinance is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. And communion and, the Lord, and baptism, when you think about both of them, they communicate the gospel in a very tangible, physical, clear way. In a way that no other command that Jesus explicitly stated does. Because in baptism, you die to sin. You rise to newness of life in Christ with communion. It's reminding us of his body and his blood, reminding us of the gospel, of what he went through on the cross. So, Jesus did speak many commands. But baptism and the Lord's Supper are two unique commands that are given for the church for the sake of proclaiming the gospel and edifying the body of Christ. So, what's unquestionable? What can we absolutely say about communion? It was instituted by Jesus. So therefore, we need to listen to him as the king. Number two, it's for the gathered church. We see this all from verse 17 all the way through verse 34. I hope you were looking for some repeated phrases and repeated words there, but let me walk through a few of them with you. Verse 17, we see the phrase, your meetings. Verse 18, when you come together as a church, 
Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 22, the church of God. Verse 29, discern the body of Christ. Verse 33, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And then finally, verse 34, when you meet together. I don't think it could be more abundantly clear what the context of the Lord's Supper is. In other words, partaking of the Lord's Supper happens as we come together. The Lord gave it in a communal setting with His followers, with the twelve. Communion is by definition a communal event. It is about communion, fellowship with God, and fellowship and communion with your brother and sister in Christ, with the church. So to state it bluntly then, communion is not a private matter. It is for and intended for the body of Christ, the gathered body of Christ. Now, of course, before you run to exceptions, all right, what about uh, a shut-in at home? What about the sick? And, okay, before you run to exceptions, think about what is normative and what God designed it for, right? We always run to exceptions when it comes to God's Word. But what is normative? What is it intended for? What is the norm? And the norm is undoubtedly to gather together to celebrate this meal. Before you run into, yeah, so, uh, the Lord's Supper is for the gathered church. Number three, it's for remembrance. Verses 24 to 25. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Some of the English versions say the opposite. This do in remembrance of me. But here's the deal with that. We are very forgetful people. Can I get an amen on that one? Anybody? We are very forgetful people. It is ingrained into our DNA. Especially when it concerns the things of God. As one pastor notes, in a world of complexity and tangents, we are prone to forget what matters most. We are disposed to drift, to shift, to waver, to allow our spiritual feet to move to the margins and not stay planted in the center. We all need to rehearse the fundamentals or the essentials of the Christian faith. So sometimes, really a lot of the time, when it comes to, let's say, a sermon or a Bible study, what you don't need is a revolutionary, just mind-blowing sermon or Bible study. What you need is simple reminders of the simple truths of the simple gospel. We all need to be reminded of what is most basic to life in general, but the Christian life in particular. And Jesus is fully aware. He knows everything. He knows you and I. He knows our hearts. He is fully aware that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, as the song says. And Jesus mercifully has given us this ordinance to help us in our weakness. I love what one pastor said. He said, The memorial of the bread is meant to graciously assault our fickle memories. That's a nice, powerful, pungent statement there. So when we remember Christ, when we're called to remember Christ, do this in remembrance of me, we must remember his death. We must remember what happened on the cross because as we sang about, uh, I don't remember which song it was, I need to go through the lyrics again, but we sang about it this morning. Jesus received the wrath of the Father when his body was broken and when his blood was poured out. But we also remember 
his life and his resurrection. Because Jesus used his life in service of others. In the, the Last Supper, it's quite interesting. As Jesus breaks the bread, passes around the fruit of the vine. We don't know if it was wine. It, all it says is fruit of the vine. There's a lot of interpretation there. But when Jesus passes that around, right after that, what happens with the disciples? They start bickering and whining about who's the most important in the kingdom of God. Who's the greatest? But then Jesus reminds them, no, the Christian life, the life I've called you to, is about serving others. The one who serves is the greatest, and Jesus is, in fact, the greatest one who has ever served. And the Lord's Supper, as one, another person said, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of God's gift of life. And if you were with us last week, you might remember, right, here's some remembrance for you. Calling you back to what I preached about last week. Remembering isn't about rehearsing facts, mentally speaking. It is about reorienting your life around the mercy of God. And that leads us to the fourth point. The Lord's Supper is about reorientation. We get this from verse 26. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper. When you think of it, at least when I typically think of it, we typically think of looking back. It's about looking back in remembrance to the Lord and what happened in the first century. But it's also about reorienting our gaze to the future, to what's ahead. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus himself alluded to this in Luke 22, verses 16 and 18. I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Because, what, what, what is Jesus, what is Paul getting at here? The Lord's Supper not only looks back, but it also points ahead to the future glory that awaits us around God's heavenly table. Let me say that again. The Lord's Supper points us ahead to the future glory that awaits us around God's heavenly table. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. Listen to this, prophesied in the Old Testament. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. How many of y'all like rich food? A, uh, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that unfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. It's a pretty well-known verse, but it's talking about the marriage supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I've heard it said like this before. When it comes to communion, the Lord's Supper, there's a bunch of different ways and places you should be looking. Look back at the Lord. Look forward to heaven. Look around to your neighbor, because it's a, a communal event, but also look up to Jesus, who is presently ruling over us. So the Lord's Supper is about reorientation, reorienting our lives around Christ. Lastly, number five, 
the posture of your heart matters. From verses 27 to 29. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Here's another way just to to frankly communicate what's going on here. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, is not for everyone. I thought Jesus was... Let me explain, right? The Lord's table is only for His people. As Charles Spurgeon said, the Lord's table is for the Lord's people. It's only for Christians. It's only for those who are in the family of God. Only for those who confess Jesus as Lord. Only for those who trust in Christ. Only for those who follow Him daily. And therefore, only those who come in a worthy manner can partake of the elements. Right? The table is fenced off. You have to understand this. The table is fenced off for God's people. It's only for their church. But the call to become a part of the church is open to everybody. Right? So some people obsess about, no, I, you know, I want to get baptized. I want to eat the Lord's Supper. Okay, that's, those are fine desires. But the more important desire that you should have is are you saved? Do you have that personal relationship with Jesus? That invitation is open to all. And once you become that Christian, once you become saved, once you receive that gift of grace, then and only then can you partake of the Lord's Supper. But then the last phrase there, something that kind of boggles my mind a little bit. Whoever eats the bread drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Frankly, what does that mean? Unworthy, being worthy. Who, who can come to the table in a worthy manner? Can you? I look over my own life, and frankly, I don't think anybody can. So what does it mean then? Who, who is worthy to come before the table? It's that interesting thing of how God works. Right? If you think you are unworthy, if you think you are sinful, if you know you are sinful, if you confess your brokenness, if you acknowledge, I am not worthy, I have mistakes, I have flaws, I have sinned, but Jesus alone is worthy. Right? This is the key. Jesus is the worthy one. And if you come trusting in Christ, if you come through the worthiness of Christ, which comes by faith, if you come on that basis, then you are worthy. Not because you are inherently, not because you are good enough inherently, but because Christ is good enough on your behalf. So when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we can unequivocally say that the posture of your heart does matter. And what's the posture of our hearts that it should be? On our knees in humility before the Lord. So church... Naomi's getting hungry. I hope we have a little bit more clarity, a little bit more unity on the Lord's Supper today. If you have more questions, want to discuss this, know that I'm always open and available to meet with you. But I love how the Baptist faith and message sums it up well. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and to anticipate his second coming.
And after the reformers got together, when they discussed those 15 central components of Christianity, they concluded the Lord's Supper topic by saying this, even though there were sincere divisions amongst everyone, they stated and came to the conclusion collectively, quote, Nevertheless, each side should show Christian love to the other side, insofar as conscience will permit, and both sides should diligently pray to Almighty God that through His Spirit He might confirm in us the right understanding. Let's stay humble. Let's stay eager when it comes to God's table. Join me in prayer.